everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here with Andrew Vance, and I'm Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. We have a special guest today, Marco Panati, the performance director at Team Jayco Alula. But before he comes on, we're just going to go through our thoughts on the recent Tour of Flanders race and then the upcoming Paris-Roubaix race so we can dedicate more time just to asking Marco about the specifics of the performance setup over at the team. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your podcast before we get going? Yeah, for sure. Find Choose the Hard Way everywhere you listen and at choosetheHardWay.com. It's a show about how hard things build stronger humans and how the hard things in life often turn out to be the most fun. Spencer and I just had Kristen Faulkner on, so go check that episode out in part two here on Beyond the Peloton. And we have a very special guest coming up. Cameron Mason will be dropping soon. So we're looking forward to sharing that episode with you all, getting all of our personal questions answered about whether the world tour is in Cameron's future. Yeah, that was a good one. I, I'm excited for that one to drop. Cameron is a special, special guy. Um, I can't imagine being that good at something and then being as humble as he is, both about his video making and his bike riding. So really a, a unique, um, uh, great person. So uh, I'm pumped that that gets to come out in just a few days. So Spencer, let's talk a little bit about the past weekend's racing and what we have coming up before we get to all of the heavyweight questions about tire liners, what are world tour riders still doing on clinchers, all of it, altitude tents, we're going deep. Coming back to clinchers. I feel like clinchers were dead, <laughs> now they're back. What the heck's going on? But yeah, Marco is going to be a great resource for that. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. But what are your takeaways from Flanders? Number one takeaway, Tadej Pogacar is amazing. I think maybe the best rider of all, not maybe the best rider. He's on pace currently, like going just by hard numbers to to match Eddie Merckx's seemingly untouchable record. So that's kind of unbelievable and hard to wrap your head around. I mean, he's the best one-day racer in the world and also the best stage racer in the world. Maybe we'll talk about Jonas Vingegaard for a quick second. Maybe he's better than Tadej, which is kind of an interesting subplot, but I mean, Tade is amazing. I, I don't think anyone's ever won the race in their second attempt at doing it. That's It's almost incomprehensible to think about that. But then the other takeaway is your wild boy, Matthew Vanderpool, is back. Like, gone is the, the measured Vanderpool winning Milano San Remo. I mean, did you watch this, like, extended race footage? Like, he's off the back. 10k into the race chasing for almost 30 minutes and then he keeps he kept getting dropped and his team would have to pull him back on because he was sitting out of position attacking for seemingly no reason on the Kreuzberg to drop Van Art, who they would have dropped anyway set Pogacar up perfectly to then attack him on the Eau Clermont and then hold him off in the Paderberg I mean what was your takeaway from Vanderpool were you, were you happy to see your your old friend return uh, the main thing it made me think about is how Every time a disruptor rises up and disrupts the status quo, they then are just waiting to be disrupted by someone else. And I think that's what we saw at the Tour of Flanders. I was excited to see all of the teams who knew they were most likely going to get destroyed by the Galacticos. <laughs> Sorry, I, I just love that they're now called the Galacticos. Um, we'll have to think about some other term of term of art for the superpowers currently destroying everyone else in the sport. But I thought that was awesome. I mean, what a race. Tape to tape, right? Yeah, and we're like really, really lucky that I don't think I've ever seen this. Like just the three best riders in the world duking it out every weekend at Classics. Like this is 
crazy. I mean, there's actually no reason for Pogacar to even be wasting his time with this. It's just kind of like a hobby. And he's winning what I think is the biggest one-day race in the world and the Tour of Flanders. It's it's something like I've never seen. And then his ability just to come in and read the race. Like, remember, you used to have to like, oh, you have to know the roads, like the back of your hand. You've got to be, you have to have grown up in Flanders to win this race. And then Taddy's like, oh, no, I think I'll just figure it out as I go along. Um, two other riders, too, doing that. Nielsen Palace gets fifth. Matteo Jorgensen ninth. Two Americans never have done this race before. And finished top 10. I mean, what, what did you think about that? Yeah, Nielsen Palace, of course, was my alternate pick to win the Tour of Flanders. Incredible ride. Has a big future ahead of him. I'm wondering if he's going to get trapped in that Mike Woods kind of... They're very different riders. They're gifted at different things. But I always thought Woods was like one notch away from being an even heavier hitter than he is. And Nielsen earlier in his career, I just like making that transition from I'm top 10 to I'm top five to, hey, I can actually win a monument. That is itself a monumental step. I believe that Nielsen can do this and it's going to take a lot of confidence and staying off of the ground. I think that's one of the primary factors. One of the interesting things about Nielsen and both of them, Mateo, I feel like they could be pretty good stage racers. Like they could have careers as one week stage racers. Maybe that's just less cool, less fun, less sexy. They just want to be one day guys. But yeah, as you say, there, there's an inherent risk in trying to win these one day classics. Cause if you don't, and most people do not, you just kind of fall into this like no man's land where you're, I did look it up. Mike Woods got second at Liege, best on Liege. I'd forgotten about that already, but you just kind of like, you're in, you're in all, you're always and always ran. So it can be, kind of i don't want to say anonymous because those are amazing results but it kind of your career tends to lack the pop that someone like primus roglic would have who can compete in these one day races and just cleans up in one week stage races yeah spencer i don't know if you caught the ef easy post videos that they're doing now they have a kind of behind the scenes video series that they just launched before Flanders. And if you're curious about the personalities of these riders and their character, which if you're listening to this podcast, I have to imagine you are, I would definitely go check those videos out. They're quite different than what we've seen before, kind of in this genre. They have a, you know, unsurprisingly for EF, they have a very cool aesthetic and some pretty funny material as well, but some great interviews with Nielsen and also with the women's team. They're pretty fantastic videos. Shout out to uh, Matt Bowden, the most handsome man in um, Boulder. Uh, I think he's the person behind these videos, but some exceptional marketing and really cool content if you want to get a closer look at what's going on behind the scenes. We should also mention Nielsen Palace did win San Sebastian, which is a pretty big one-day race. So Yeah, he's a hitter. He's a hitter and he's, he's, a hitter. he's on his way up. But like, can he become a top stepper in the Galactico era. Well, this is perf perfect you bring this up. Can anyone? I mean, we're seeing Mads Pedersen, 2019 world champion, Kasper Askren, 2021 Tour of Flanders winner, like get into early breakaways because they know they can't stay with Vanderpool, Van Aert, and Pogacar in the tough final circuit. I mean, it's kind of, that was hard to wrap my head around. Like Mads Pedersen is such a good rider and he's just like realizing, oh, I have to attack with 100K to go to have any chance to stay with these guys. I mean, I thought it was a great awareness and, and repression of one's ego to know that you need a minute gap on a three minute long climb to hold off Pogacar. If you noticed, they went into the old Cuermo the last time 
Pedersen is a 35 second gap. And this is not a long climb. It's, it's, it's like sub five minutes, I think. And Pogacar has him reeled in a minute and a half into the climb with a 30 second disadvantage to start the climb. I mean, it was an unbelievable pace differential. So it might just be everyone is a step below these guys. And if this is a bad time to be chasing major victories in pro cycling, it actually seems hard to think that someone else could come out on top. Having said that, do you think, like, what do you think happens at Roubaix this coming weekend? Do you think Van Aert gets his redemption? He is kind of building form after, I think, getting sick because we tried to warn him. Cross season was a little too rowdy, I think. You think he pushed it too deep this winter, got sick this spring. Now he's a little off form, trying to build back into it. Or do you think this could be the weekend that a Stefan Kung or a Niels Pollitt comes out on top and beats these top three guys? Well, first of all, let's not forget that we are a mere four and a half months away from cross. Cross is coming, Spencer. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure that Matthew Vanderpool and Woot are definitely have that in mind as they're doing these classics. It's really just along with the Tour de France. It's preparation for cross, which will be coming in just a few short months. Before we jump into Roubaix, though, just two more quick observations about Flanders. You mentioned mods. One of the things that always comes up when I'm talking to people about him, phenomenal writer, incredible Palmares. For some reason, he looks like a gigantic person on television. Maybe that's just relative to the other writers. But when you go and look at his stats, he's not that gigantic of a human, surprisingly. I don't know why on TV he looks like uh, he looks like he's like 6'2", 180 or something. He's he does not. look massive. I'm looking meters to feet right now. He's five. Sub five eight? Oh my god! I think he's five yeah. ten. I think he's five ten. I could be wrong. Well, one point seven nine meters is. Oh, oh, you're right. You're right. That is five ten. I did the conversion wrong. Okay, and I think um, he's like a like one hundred and fifty pounds. That's ma- in today's pro cycling. That might be massive. I mean, a lot of these guys, like think of the Yates brothers. There, almost like one hundred and twenty pounds. I mean, I think Tom Pickock's like one hundred and twenty five pounds. Right. So. The modern cyclist, maybe 155 is is like, th- that's the new 180. All right. So that's just a visual observation. But strategically, as we noted, the disruptors are trying to disrupt the Galacticos, whether they can act successfully do this. I mean, it's, we could call it Battlestar Galactica, I guess, at this point. But, you know, people are having to try moves that just wouldn't have made any sense at any other moment in cycling history. And now it's just going to go from the gun and a six hour race, it seems. And not in a, we're sending the drone hopper Cipollini boys off the front. Uh, you know, like there's some kind of hologram at Coachella. This is real stuff. These are hitters that are getting out there who know that this is the only way to win the race or to have a shot at it. So I'm curious if we're going to see Roubaix run in a slightly different manner, which we'll get into here in a second. And then my final observation on Flanders, I know this would be apostasy, but there was a part of me when Tade won and he immediately had the frites handed to him. Part of me was just like, man, I want the McDonald's fry guy right next to him. I was like, like just the brand moment. There's just something waiting to be taken there. So maybe next year. It is, does seem like a big missed opportunity. Like McDonald's needs just a mat like don't even pay flanders to sponsor the race just like gate crash have a guy in a massive old mcdonald outfit and you're handing you're shoving fries into pagacha's face right after the finish 
You it's need the fry. Idea. You need the fry guy. Maybe that's after or before your time, Spencer. The fry the guy. Fry guy. You know, I yeah. yeah. Like, was this like with the Hamburglar? And it was. Yes, they kind correct. of phased these guys out. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's in the deep recess of my brain. <laughs> All right, moving moving on to Rubain. We just have a few minutes here. So, I what do, do you see going down? It's an interesting question. Of I mean, we saw like serious attacks with two sixty k to go at Flanders. The one thing I wondered about with that is. They're they're almost just like high ideas. Like Bahrain was like, you know what would be awesome if we guttered it at what two sixty k to go and broke the race up. It's like, well, okay, so you drop a ton of teams and riders, so no one's going to work with you, and then what you're going to you're going to set a pace for six hours that outpaces the group behind. Like, I don't know if like that actually was a good idea. It was exciting for us and looked cool. It actually ultimately just helped Tade because Vanderpool got caught in every in every moment where the pace was lifted. Um, but Roubaix is a slightly different race. You know, Roubaix, what Matt Heyman won from the early break, and that wasn't that long ago. It was like 2017, 2016, something like that. And then Sylvain Dillier, the year that he got second to Sagan, I think he was a survivor of the early break. So Roubaix is a race where you can break it up. You know, you can get up the road at 250K to go and hold that thing off and even potentially win the race. So I think we might see it go early. And I believe last year, Ineos kind of broke the race up really early, right? And got Van Barl ahead of the Galacticos. And then that's how he won the race. I think you're onto something. I think we're going to see this race break up really far out. Spencer, I'm taking a look at the start list for Roubaix, in particular, Intermarche, Circus Wanty. They were decimated in the wreck at Flanders. Three guys in the hospital, I believe, with fairly serious injuries thankfully recovering. Is it possible that they're only starting five riders? They have five riders on their start list and they could start seven. Well, it's possible. I, mean, I, I think it's, I think they're going to call people up. I think they're mistake? probably just, I don't think it's a mistake. I bet they just haven't filled the yeah. full form out yet. And right. so over the next like two days, they'll get the right people there to have a full team. I mean, it's a Belgian team. Yeah, People can't, seems... can't be too far afield. I think they can track them down <laughs> if they need them. Okay. All right. The other thing that's jumping out at me here is we've got Cameron Wirth, the wheel lender, as he's known. He lended a wheel to Matthew Vanderpool during a Tour de France time trial a couple of years ago. That he, he won, did... right? Or Correct. at least he held the yellow jersey in. Yeah. So Cameron Wirth is on the start list for Enios Grenadiers, which is interesting. Triathlete slash Cobble Classic specialists. They've also got Luke Rowe, Ghana, uh, and then uh, Ben Connor. Or no, I'm sorry. Who was their writer who was who broke an arm? I at, think Ben uh, Turner. Is, ben Turner. I'm sorry. He's yeah. buddies with Cameron Mason, actually. Yeah. So he broke, I think, an arm or an elbow in that wreck at Flanders. Um, but the the Enios team is looking strong. They, of course, don't have a Galactico. But what do you think about Ghana's chances. Uh, uh, this is exciting. I mean, I I am I should have a disclaimer. Anytime I talk about Ghana, I, I would like I, I would run the man's fan club if he would let me. I think he is like more potential than anyone in pro cycling. Uh, actually, funny you mentioned Cameron Worf. Worf. I feel like he retires every year and then like right. gets brought back for these special races. The reason he's in this squad, I doubt he even gets a tire on a cobblestone. I think he's in this just to position them in the on the paved sections you know the first 100k of the race that are just paved 
Um, and I bet he pulls out of the race before they even get to the cobblestones. That's my guess. He's just a big engine, big guy. You can draft off him, kind of perfect to help you in the early stages of this race. You know, Ghana, it, it does start to seem a little like a little while ago that he was that physically good at San Remo, but man, like this race, you almost couldn't drop a better race. The weight doesn't really penalize you. It's about four to five minute power. How often can you go above 500 Watts for five minutes and then quickly recover and do it again and again and again, kind of seems perfect for someone like Ghana. Can't really sprint. I guess we did see him beat Van Art in the sprint at the end of San Remo. Um, I don't know. I like him a lot, you know, but the only thing is the favorite at Roubaix. It's like the curse of the favorite. Like who's going like, okay, you get up the road with Ghana. Who in their right mind would help that man? Like he would just have to ride everyone off his wheel, like peak Tom Boonen. Yeah, absolutely. And if, I mean, if we take a look at the, the other favorites, Woot has said in the press this week that he actually is more injured than he initially thought he was. He apparently went down quite hard at Flanders and he's talked about how, it took a while to recover from that once the adrenaline <laughs> I, I would think the adrenaline would wear off at some point during the tour of Flanders, but apparently it didn't the next couple of days. He said he actually had some trouble training. He's feeling better now. I also feel like more so than any other writer in the pro Peloton today, Woot knows how to use the press to psychologically leverage his opponents. So I'm not quite sure what to make of his statements. When I think about Matthew Vanderpool, he, I feel like he tends to ride at his best after a major loss. And I feel like, you know, that might be the case this week. Equally, I don't think he's going to win. And then if it's not Woot, Yumbo has a lot of cards to play. But isn't Dylan Van Barrow also injured? Didn't he get injured recently? Yeah. Or, he, right? Yeah, he missed Flanders for an injury, and then now he's racing. Uh, that, right. That's red flags, big red flags for me. The only thing about... Wow, I do think he tends to do well after disappointment. And then why is he telling us all of this? I don't know. That's I think what this I'm saying. A, a bit of a That's what I'm screen. saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, my, the radar is going up there. I think he might have a good day. Yeah, I think, I think he might have a good well, day as well. Our guest, Marco, is lost somewhere in the ether. So we're going to have to pause, try to find him, bring him in, and then we'll talk okay. to him. Oh, here he is. Hey everybody, so our guest Marco Panati is here. He is the sport engineer director at Team Jayco Alula. He, correct me if I'm wrong, Marco, your specialty is time trials. Um, you're probably too modest to say this, but Jayco, formerly Bike Exchange, was, was I'd say going through a rough patch with their time trials before you came on. And then now since you've been there, you're, you've been ripping off some really, really good results, like probably most notably Simon Yates at the 2020 to Giro d'Italia, winning that time trial. That was a surprise. And then recently at the Dauphiné, that kind of uh, goofy modern team time trial, you guys absolutely crushed that. And and I'm even forgetting one. Matteo Sobrero won the Giro d'Italia stage also. Yeah, I think it was Paris-Nice, not Dauphiné, the most recent one. Oh, apparently. And uh, yeah. I mean, it was a surprise for a lot of people, not for me, which actually I was more disappointed not to get the win. Uh, we did we did get a good team work, but it was not a perfect uh, or it was not ideal performance. Otherwise, I think we would have really won. But uh, you know, in the end, I, I, I was happy with the results, not with the overall performance per se. But um, yeah, the team has, prog has been progressing well. So you weren't you were not happy with that? No, with I, that would, I would not be happy until we, we win a good a good team. 
And so when you're, you know, when you come into a team, I think you guys were on different bikes. You were on the Bianchi's. Yeah. Bianchi's, yeah. We, we were and... racing Bianchi in 2021 when I joined the team. And then 2022, Giant uh, came on board and we are, we are still using Giant. Do you feel like those bikes are faster? I mean, and do you really have any data that tells you that different time trial bikes are better? Do you just kind of have to trust the riders and trust the marketing materials from the team, from the I mean, it's, it's, it's not only the bike. It's a, it's a, probably more the whole package. So it's the bike, the wheels, uh, the, the rider, the skins with the helmet. It's the whole package. And, uh, but certainly I think uh, the Giants providing us uh, quite a fast package. And then when, so when you came into the team, without going, giving us proprietary information, like what's the process of, you know, laying everything out and saying, this is where we are in terms of our arrow setup our performance you know is not fantastic like how do you even go about rebuilding that time trial program so initially when i joined the team we did uh, spend uh, i think it was during COVID time december 2020 and uh, we spent i think two full days in uh, valencia track uh, in december and also a couple of days in january and we i basically test the position and check the cda of the world team and of the world team, maybe not say the world team, but maybe at least 50 riders, half of the team, either rider who were going for GC or good time trial, or someone could be good in a team time trial. And uh, <clears throat> so we got some numbers there. And then, um, you know, in the, uh, let's say, let's say this way, you start with the package that you have and the beginning, you, you, you cannot change man a lot because, uh, you have to work with the partner that you got. And so you work with that, you, you, you train, you train to test and select what is, uh, and, you know, select the best equipment for, for the, for the, for a certain, uh, course. And, um, after that, I, you know, <clears throat> try to introduce a, a working method as regards training, because as far as equipment is important, you know, Power is always king in time trial. And um, so you work on, on, on both two, two sides of the, of the coin. One is, is uh, you know, optimizing equipment, and the other one, optimizing the training for the specific events. And then, um, you know, the, the year after, we also hired uh, Matteo Sobrero, who was an Italian young rider, uh, uh, was, was, uh, who became, you know, in the process of, of negotiation, became national champion beating Ghana. So certainly, <clears throat> A rider, uh, we, we did not discover him, a rider that, but I think he, we made him do a good step uh, forward in time trialing. And, uh, you know, again, uh, again uh, he, won, he won the Giro. He was fourth in the, uh, the first, first 30 in the Giro, fourth in the, uh, he won the last one. And he did also a good Grand Prix de Nation at the end of the season. And now he's doing well also in, um, you know, in Pais Basque. He's been one of the main motor in the team time trial and uh, so it's a continuous process you never let to settle always find for uh, you know look what the others are doing look what, what's coming up what's coming out and uh, <clears throat> and uh, so as I, I like to say we have a fast bike but it's not a, a very recent bike because the bike we are using is still uh, uh, the bike that i was familiar with when i was uh, with ccc so still a giant trinity which is a you know a rim brake bike was still considered fast 
faster. And, uh, and I can tell that John is working on a new disc TT bike that uh, uh, I don't know when it will be released, but they are still working. They are already working on that. So I will expect a, a further improvement on that side. Hey, Marco, a follow-up question for you. How do you work with the rest of the high-performance team, specifically when it comes to the limitations of a rider's mobility or flexibility on the bike? Because do you ever look at a rider and see the possibility for them to have a lower CDA and produce more watts if they can make adjustments to their position and yeah. that are going to require adjustments to mobility or their yeah. flexibility or strength program? Yeah, one of the... I think the main contribute, the main factor that contribute to our, you know, improvement was the partnership we had with Vortec. And one of the key factor with the partnership is that we we send specific rider to do a biomechanical assessment. And uh, during this four-hour session, basically there's a physiotherapist who had a look at the position of the rider, and more important, how how the rider's mobility is and what type of, of, uh, of uh, what is the range of a position that the rider can sustain on, on a TT bike. Because like, it's exactly, it's exactly like, like you said, it's not that, uh, you know, the fastest position is sustainable on the road. So uh, basically analyzing, you know, the position from a biomechanical standpoint, uh, you get a rough idea where uh, you say, okay, this position is uh, sustainable and this one, might not be sustainable, so let's 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 try this one first, and then and then proceed later and see how the, the how you know how the feeling is is on the road. And Marco, something that's very common in time trials, in particular, and we also see this on the road, is the tendency when riders are in these extremely aerodynamic positions just to keep sliding on the saddle. And I know historically we've seen riders like I think Tony Martin used to put grip tape on his saddle. Is there anything that's evolved that's keeping riders more in place, or is just this something that happens when you're in that type of position? Yeah, I think the saddle are evolving. They're becoming shorter saddle and different different shape saddle. They are now uh, some saddle which are which shape is not uh, very traditional, but it's like it's like a, you know very symmetric, you know. Uh, we don't we don't have this setup, but I, I see I see that evolution in that. I mean, everybody is focusing a lot on the front end, like cockpit or uh, or uh, you know handlebar helmets. But uh, uh, like working on on um, having a saddle that uh, allows the rider to maintain a certain stability. I think it's it's a, it's a, uh, it's an area that. Uh, we will see further changes in the future. And so you're away now, I believe, at, at a high altitude training camp with the team. Yeah. And you know, Andrew and I have just been, you know, we, we're obsessed with these camps. You know, it feels like altitude used to be something that only a few riders would do. And then now it seems like everyone's constantly doing altitude camps throughout the season. Is, you know, is there, is, is there a significant more gain to go to altitude than just do something like an altitude tent in your home? Like, is the science proven on that? Or do you guys just, just figure, you know, you can be at altitude longer at these camps and you can get away and all train together. And, and that's a plus. Uh, it's a good question. 
but you know, uh, I know a lot of riders have used stand, and I see a lot of riders going to real altitude. Um, I don't have any direct experience with altitude 10, which uh, are still forbidden by the Italian Olympic Committee. So that's why in Italy, you know, it's it's a, it's a, you know even considered doing that. But from um, anecdotal experience, the rider I know, I think the real altitude is uh, gives. I'm not saying that the, the the fake altitude is not uh, uh, doesn't do any benefit, but my understanding is that in altitude you are forced to you spend a lot of time. Even you know, I'm in a, in a, in the lobby of the hotel, and I'm still uh, briefing the hair of 2,400 meter. While if you are in a tent or you know now there's some room that there's some hotel that offer rooms, and you need to spend uh, you know 16 hours a day to get a, a good benefit in the room, and that's also I wonder how that is sustainable. And yeah. so you know I I've seen listen if the tent would be so effective, I think given the logistic. Uh, difficulties to organize uh, an altitude camp uh, throughout the season and the travel involved. I think rather would just stay at home with, the, with their own tent or, or stay where they live with their own tent if that would be that effective. I think it's just a, uh, a, an alternative but not a substitute to real altitude. This is my feeling, even if, as I said, I. I don't have data uh, to to support what I see what I say, but if it, if it, if the tent would really be working, we wouldn't see so many people moving or leaving at altitude. And what's the methodology there? If, basically, is it if you're not racing, if you're trying to build up to a big objective, you're you just get to altitude for as long as you can, or are you guys just up there for two weeks at a time and, and then you get back no, down? Yeah, yeah. So there's different trends, different way of working. Uh, and uh, usually, you know, you, 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 you introduce altitude block when you have at least two weeks of altitude and meaning a bit more time between races, uh, maybe three weeks between races so that you have time uh, to recover from the race, time to adapt to altitude, do a block of training, and then time also to um, introduce high intensity training before before the race starts. So let's say if you have a month with no racing, then you can do, you can plan a real attitude in the preparation, in the pro, in the, in the, in the overall plan of, uh, of a rider. If you have less, you can go to attitude to recover. Uh, <clears throat> but let's say you, between races, you can attitude to recover. And so why you can, you can maintain uh, some, um, you know, the most of the aerobic adaptation without, because you have a stress on, of the body without the need to, to kill yourself in training, and uh, <clears throat> and then what, I, you know, and then it doesn't work. Uh, no, I, what I'm saying, it works for. I think I believe it works for all the rider, but not in the same way. Uh, we've seen rider that, you know, respond well and uh, and takes uh, you know get the best out of altitude from uh, one week after until. Uh, you know, five or six weeks after the altitude. Other riders, the benefits are not so clear. I still think they, they got it, but other riders may maybe, especially one day, they struggle a bit when they are up here. And uh, not every not every 
even for the same athlete, not every camp is the same. So when we go to altitude like here, we, we carefully monitor how the rider come into the camp and they've not they fatigue because we, we are we, we monitor uh you know the hydration, they yeah, they fatigue and, and also you know every day we just the important is we are here and we look in the face, you look you look at them in training and we monitor that to, to, to make sure they don't overload because it's quite uh it's quite easy to do that because the, I mean it's a big stress for the body, even if you if you avoid high intensity. And Marco, we were recently talking to a another world tour pro and they were talking about how they have a preference for doing heat camps where they're doing heat acclimatization. Does that produce similar effects to altitude in terms of blood plasma volume or hematocrit changes or not? Yeah, yeah, I think the study shows that yeah, it does. But uh, and uh, so in the past, uh, in my experience, we try to combine heat training with altitude. No, sorry, heat exposure, not either heat training uh, with altitude. Uh, it sounds to me that you know the the, the latest uh, on heat is that you need to train in heat training and you need to you know to reach a certain core temperature to get the benefit. But you need to do for I think the the the, the protocol that I read was like five weeks, uh, five days a week, uh, one hour um, of heat training exposure, and that also becomes to get you know a response similar. To increase in plasma, plasma volume that you get with like with the altitude, and that becomes, I think, uh, difficult to tolerate for a rider. I mean, it's not easy to do that. Uh, so, what you know, uh, what we try to do in altitude is to combine the altitude with a certain heat exposure because we've seen that uh, you know with global warming the races are hotter and hotter, especially from from May on. So um, when you go to altitude, if you go in February, especially if you go in February, the temperatures are quite cold. <clears throat> so one one downside of doing that is that you might go to a race where there is, uh, uh, I don't know, 20 degrees more than the normal training that you've been doing the, in the previous weeks. And then <clears throat> for sure, there is a, there is a lack of uh, adaptation to heat. So that's why it's important to come down one or two, maybe 10 days before the, the, the key event. So you have time also to expose the body to the heat via, via active exposure, I mean, in training or passive, like uh, with saunas or with a hot bath or, you know, or other, you know, just uh, being exposed to the, to the heat. But, but, uh, but it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a topic that we keeps evolving is there a like when you know i'm just thinking of myself when i've come down from altitude i'll feel really good for you know three or four days are you still like in the third week of a grand tour are you still getting benefits from that altitude camp that you did you know maybe at that point five weeks prior or does it kind of wear off over time or do you guys figure it's so hard on the body that it is building some sort of permanent adapt adaptation i think i think for most of the rider with the effect will last until five okay. weeks i mean at least uh it's just an total, but uh, I mean, there's so many variables involved. Uh, what do you do in those five weeks? But uh, um, it's not only a methodological parameter. It's only you know uh, uh, the way the 
the, the muscle are, are able to extract the cell. I think they, those, those adaptation last definitely longer than, uh, than three weeks. Okay. Andrew, do you want to, you want to get going on your clinchers questions? I, I, we need to get into this as soon as possible. Oh yeah. We, we've, we've got to get into clinchers. I wanted to ask a nutrition question first though, because of course the trend right now is to train a writer's gut to get to the highest level of carb tolerance possible through a combination of maltodextrin and fructose. And we don't really hear that much about ketones anymore. In my view, ketones are a, are a nutritional supplement. I know that there are some writers who view them in a different way, which I honestly don't really understand. But in addition to going in the direction of extremely high carb up to 150 grams per hour, maybe just broadly within the world tour, are writers still using ketone supplementation on top of super high carb or have ketones fallen out of favor? I think that the riders are still using that, but certainly they lost uh, the appeal that they have uh, three, four years ago. So it's becoming more, more of a matter of uh, individual choices and whether uh, a rider had good experience with that and finding the right protocol for them. Uh, so it's really, uh, I mean, the biggest difference that you've seen in performances in the past year is due, like you said, to the ability uh, uh, of the body, of, of the riders to, to heat and absorb a higher amount of carbohydrate that were, were uh, not even thought 10 years ago. But now because the, 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 you know, the quality of maltodextrin and, and the, the formula we have, are able to, I, I don't know the number you mentioned, 250, I think is, is too much in my experience, but, but definitely more than 100 grams of carbohydrate, it's something that the majority of writers we work with uh, are able to absorb. And um, as far as ketone, I think it's very, it's a very individual and, uh, and, yeah, and I need to experiment and find, uh, uh, because if things go, let's say, let's put it this way, if things go wrong with ketones, they can also impair your performance. While with carbohydrates, you know, you always go on the safe side. How can ketones impair performance? Yeah, because maybe if you, if you took it the wrong time, that impairs you the ability to, to access, uh, you know, the, carbo uh, the carbohydrates in the body. So <clears throat> uh, you take a ketone before, during, you know, at the beginning of the ride, and for a, you know, for a certain amount of time, your ability to to go over threshold is kind of impaired, hmm. and you know you you preserve that 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 fuel because you're not able to fully access it. That's my understanding of of, of the thing. So, uh, I think I think it's been a use ketones. I mean, during the competition, given this uh, risk, is not is not a common practice using ketone. Definitely, it's more uh, maybe for for recovery or, or you know, I mean, the studies show that can, can uh, improve recovery and, you know, can uh, lower the, some um, inflammation uh, signals uh, during a big block of training or big block of racing. But, and um, so I'm not, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not a big fan of ketone during uh, or before a race. 
And Marco, are you a big fan of clinchers? Because we're Spencer and I have been trying to figure out what are clinchers doing in the Cabo Classics because we've seen a bit of that now. But when you talk clinchers, you mean tubeless? No, we, there are reports that some teams are actually on clinchers. Well, not us. Like so I can't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know maybe maybe they, they specialize team, they use clinchers. And uh, I mean, everybody has his own preference. <clears throat> I mean, we don't have a strong classic squad, so it's a bit... Uh, I'm, I'm not so arrogant to say, yeah, oh, they are not good, but I just said, uh, you know, we are happy with what with what we have, which is tubeless, and so for so, in some cases still tubular. Uh, and I cannot answer about clincher because really I don't, I you know, it's uh, it's something I I don't have racing experience with. We see. We yeah. see tires going wider and wider now. I mean, at Flanders, there were riders on reported to be on tires up to 32. Do you think we're ever going to see tires go back in the direction of narrower and higher pressure for anything other than the track? Uh, other than the track? Mm, probably not. Probably there will, be, there will be a balance at some point for time trial on a, on a, on a, on a smooth asphalt. It would be, I mean, I don't think it would go to 32. I would feel we stop maybe 26. Uh, but I don't think that's why we come, we come back, especially especially with the the state of, of some of the roads in some countries, you know, that's, uh, it's uh, not only faster, but also more comfortable. And uh, now with disc uh, brakes, uh, yeah, it's quite, uh, there's no problem of clearance and uh, We've seen the performances are not getting worse, so uh, I don't see anyone going back to. No, I'm not, not even talking about twenty, but even twenty-three millimeter tire. I don't see anyone going back anytime soon. So it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that Spencer and I have talked about quite a bit in the past year, we heard. I think it was Jonathan Waters at one point. We don't know if this is factual or not, but he was talking about Rimco and he was talking about Rimco's shoulder width, shoulder width to hip width ratio and the impact that that has on CDA. Is there like a magic shoulder to hip ratio that's highly desirable for a rider? I mean, you can't change that obviously, but is there some shape of a human that's really optimal in that regard? I mean, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that, but for sure, a rider with a narrow or thin shoulder and a, and a thin hip, it definitely and uh, is definitely as uh, an advantage on the on the on his position, both TT on and the road bike. But in the case of Renko, I mean, we've seen it on the climb. It's also a matter of absolute power. Sure, it's not that you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but but definitely, no, what, what's what what is interesting with him is that when he he can ride people off the wheel because it's so aerial. Right. You know, it's it's it, that's what happened last year in World Championship. You know, he ride literally people off the wheel, and uh, that that means it's, it's aerial, but it's also very powerful because 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 when he climbs, you know, the aerodynamic factor counts very little. And he's still you know, on a very steady and steep climb. He still drops 
everyone on when is uh, on his best day. Makes him a subpar lead out rider, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's also good. I mean, it's also good in the lead out if you see, think about it. But I think the rider behind him is gonna. It's not like sitting behind Van Poppel or, or someone as bigger. I remember like five, maybe 10 years ago, clincher, like there was these super fast clinchers for time trials that teams were running. And then now people have 3D printed handlebars. Like, is there an arms race going on with, with time trial equipment that you can only keep up with if you have a certain budget? Or are you guys able to supply the riders with really fast um, accoutrement equipment that's not breaking the bank? No, there's there's a, there's a there's a for sure a, a competition at that level, which costs, uh, and uh, you need you need the commitment and investment. But uh, I think most of the team can afford to invest what is required for you know at least the key key riders. I mean the 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 let's let's put it this way. The investment a, a team does in a salary of a rider is much, much bigger. I mean, I mean the investment required to, you know, to, to give a, a rider a fast setup on the TT, but it's not even close to the current the salary of a strong rider. So you know, the rider should also think about it when he selects the team. Uh, if you find the team that you know, is able to to allow him or, or to help him in uh, in getting faster, and maybe get as more as slightly smaller paycheck, but but we get a bigger equipment. We give him in the in the long in the long run, we benefit also from his uh, you know it will benefit also is also his uh, his paycheck. And I've heard a lot of talk about your skin suits that you guys have these super fast skin suits. Can you talk about that, or is that a proprietary formula? No, I mean we we had. Uh, in LA, they have, uh, uh, have been able to develop uh, a fast skin suit. Uh, it's not only us; it's also it's also other uh, you know other brands that they have developed uh, fast skin suit. But the, the, what I've seen is also maybe I'm, on, uh, I'm a bit naive, but when the rider is uh, perceived, the rider perceived to have a, a fast setup. In terms of skin suit and bike, is also able to put more effort into his his, his effort, to move more power into the, his competition. When the rider believes that he starts with a with a, a disadvantage from the equipment, from his equipment, is is uh, just not able to to do to to fulfill his potential. So there is a I don't say if you placebo effects or, but uh, it's like, you know, you start the 100 meter, and you think already one meter behind, 100 meter race and two meter behind the, the other competitor, you know, you say why, you know, why is it because because this rider in a competition they go very deep, you know, and then they they really you really have to 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 want very bad, you know, to suffer. And uh, and uh, if if a rider is not convinced they got the best equipment or they they even worse they convince the competitor they have a better equipment they say is it worth it you know and then because I've seen with the rider they believe they they they, they set up is is uh, is not uh, is not good their power is also bad 
So sometimes I have athletes in the past say, ah, you know, I don't have this. Yeah, okay, but maybe you don't have the faceta, but if you put if you put 5.5 watts kilo for 20 minutes, the equipment is not the problem. The power is the problem, is the main problem. Maybe, maybe, oh, okay, maybe the equipment is the problem, it's a smaller one, you know, but the power is much bigger one. I feel personally assaulted by this answer. <laughs> five point five watts per kilo. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm I mean, what, I, what I mean is, uh, uh, Randers are winning are putting six six point two. Yeah. And so yeah. if you do five point five, okay, maybe you don't have the fastest keep, the fastest to keep, in, but the the bigger problem is not that one. I mean, do you think there was a bump inside the team when you guys switched bikes back over to Giant, like just an, an emotional bump because they felt like they were on faster bikes? Yeah, for some rider, yeah, he played. Uh, he played. Uh, having a change when things are going bad, and uh, even not for the reason why why that that caused the change, the change. But uh, you know, it's uh, having a change sometimes when things were, were are not going well um, helps. You know, regardless of bike or whatever. But even uh, uh, I mean, twenty twenty one was not a, a very successful year for the team. So uh, changing bike, changing some some stuff, uh, uh, I think caused a, a bit of disruption in the team, but uh, brought news, new fresh air into into the team. And so, like you said, it was a, a bump. And Marco, can you talk a bit about when the decision is made to run the aero road bike versus the more standard climbing bike? I mean, we're seeing this all the time now. We're on a climbing stage. We'll see. Lots of teams, like, they're just running the aero bike no matter what. I suppose it probably depends on how steep the pitch is, how sustained the climbs are, or how long they are. But there's this ongoing debate about, okay, if you have an extra half kilo weight on your bike, the aerodynamic advantage outweighs it or not. Just, like, for people watching the races, what's going on and how does the team make that call? Is that, like, a psychological issue as well for riders or is it more about performance? <laughs> No, normally I made that call <laughs> for the rider. Okay, uh, but and and I base the call on uh, you know most of the time, most of the courses, aerodynamics outweighs weight most of the time. But in certain specific cases, uh, I mean, a very very long climbs or very steep climbs, or uh, very long climb, very steep climb, and very tall or heavy riders. Uh, which I mean, so with rather with bigger frames, then it makes sense to go for the for the you know the, the not the, the non aero solution. Or sometimes it's a matter of comfort because usually uh, this the the aero bike are a bit are more stiff, being faster, and and uh, like we see now in the in the cobble classic or. Sometimes that they, they preference to, to go for the more traditional bike. So, but it's a matter. I, I think in the future we will arrive to have the aero will will take advantage over over the the normal bike. And Marco, we also frequently see pro riders running 140, 150 mil stem, which is not something you see amateur riders doing very often. What's going on when a pro makes a decision to do that? Because that was like a big Cipollini thing, you know, 20 years ago. You yeah, still yeah. see it a I bit mean, now. What, what's going on? I tell you what's going on. It's, <laughs> uh, 
now when when you sign introduce the rule of forbidding uh, the forerun position inside the on the handlebar the rider are uh, i find that, that you know temporary or which become a permanent solution to heavy to to reverse the lever inside okay so doing that they shorten the reach of the handlebar so basically they are they are too short compared maybe they lose one centimeter so so the people with who had a stem of 13 uh, centimeter now they need a stem of 14 centimeter and people who had 14 now they need a stem of 15 centimeter which doesn't even exist in in some in some you know in, in for instance and so that was going that's what's what's happening and we've seen that you know when they when they bend the the the, the lever in the front they also the brake goes a little bit backward and when there's a crash the lever is the first thing that breaks so i think uh, i think this issue is going to be addressed by uci at some point because it's becoming ridiculous you know and <laughs> but on the other side if you see there are you know the narrow bar are, are narrowing and uh, the, the the some the riders who are i don't know they go from 42 to even 38 and the bar uh because you know they they can sit in a position maintain the level straight but it has to be a balance because a too narrow handlebar you you are just not able to to you know to corner as well as with a with a 40 or 42 centimeter handlebar so maybe you're faster but you, you don't forget you have to ride in a peloton and and the ability the, the technical skill it's it's a very very key fundamental skill in today's peloton so you need to have a handlebar you know you need to be able to be able to descend well so um yeah i tell you what's going on i don't know i think it, it will be come to a point there where some someone will, will will go back to to what we were before they're just going to bring back spinachi <laughs> yes yes <laughs> we've been uh what, what's going on with these wax chains marco this is something we've been debating where it, the you kind of pre-wax the chain in some sort of cooking you like cook it basically and then put it on the bike and you don't have to lubricate it you know because we were surprised to see wout van Aert getting you know lube from the team car at e3 like are you guys still doing that dry lube or are you waxing the chains and then not lubing them and then just re-waxing them or throwing them away when they wear out so wax chain has been a i mean a hot topic for it still is but in uh let's say in uh i mean it's good for specific events like time trial but for road racing the riders and the mechanic you know are still relying a lot on traditional lube you see with what art because it's uh the work chain are more difficult to to be managed in a in a you know in a race movement when you're 200k and then you go on the bus and in a daily in a daily manager are much more complicated and because the difference there is a difference but it's not so um so decisive yeah for most most of the most of the team uh, use uh, most of for most of the riders use still the traditional lube which are you know getting better as well but but the work chain is a bit more complicated matter to to manage i mean you can do it by yourself you if you only have one bike one chain and but 
but um, the the way they race, you know, the way they treat the bike and the in the environment they race, it's become it's not a, an easy thing to manage and to keep uh, to maintain the chain uh, the advantage that it claims to have. We have Perry Roubaix coming up, like right after this is released. Um, he's not on your team, but he's your countryman, Filippo Ghana. Do you think he has a shot? To, can can the Italians rule? I think he has a shot. Yeah, yeah. I think he has a shot. Definitely, is the classic that's switching the the most. He has a, he has a a strong team to support him, and uh, yeah, he will need some luck, like everyone you know who wins through Bay, or just need the not 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 bad luck. But I think he has a shot. Yeah, we will definitely be there uh, in the top five. What? What do you think he's capable of, like in his career? It seems like he can, if he really focuses on it, he can just do anything. Like, oh, the Poggio with Pogacar, not a big deal. I'll just sit on his wheel and put out 650 watts for five minutes. Is that supposed to be hard? I didn't notice. Like, could he compete at a Grand Tour if he really wanted to lose the weight and kind of go the Miguel and Durango? No. no, no, I don't think so. No, I mean, Sanremo is is uh, is not a hard race. No, he has, he has five minutes. No, he can he can do five minutes uh, uh, six hundred watts, probably or five hundred fifty because he did an individual pursuit. But uh, oh, he can do well in Roubaix. He can do well in Flanders, but Grand Tour no, because it's too heavy. I mean, unless they design a Grand Tour just for him with maybe one hundred fifty <laughs> kilometer of time trial and zero twenty twenty five. Oh, it could happen. No, it I could mean, happen. No, I mean, I mean, they did it in the Tour de France with Wigris in yeah. twenty twelve, and they did it in the past with Francesco Moser or in the eighties. They did Giro with the, the mountain stage was like they had Stelvio and uh, they had Pordoi and finishing fifty kilometers later. Uh, but the, the the way they design now Grand Tour, I don't think so, and I don't think I don't I don't I don't believe he's thinking about that either himself. I mean, if he could win Roubaix and Flanders, I mean that's I don't blame him for yeah, not. That's you know, why would you want to? <laughs> I think I think I think he should focus on that. You yeah. know, he should focus. I mean, Saremo showed that he has the the, the 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 durability to arrive at the at the end of a race like Roubaix. You just need to work, keep working on that and uh, target those two monuments. That's uh, that's what I would do. In his, uh, you know, he's, he's been winning all the time trial, the strongest time trial is currently. I mean, I think he needs to find the motivation now to do well in the classic. He can climb well, eh? so but the climb that he can do well is are, you know, exactly the one uh, in Rubeo or, or even shallow climbs like, uh, you know, five percent or something like this, but. Longer climbs, uh, uh, it just costs too much energy because you need to go for under 80 watts, and you know it's, go, it's not going to tolerate the heat uh, of that in a in a in a Grand Tour environment. Is are these conversations you have with your rider Matteo Sobrero, like another great Italian time trialist? Like, is he or is he just so dialed in on time trials that's all he wants to do? Like, I think he got fifth today at uh, no. this, that. Fourth, got fourth. Yeah. No, this winter, this winter we sat down uh, if, when we were discussing the preparation, and I said, "Listen, do you want to be a good time trial? I want to be something more because I think you can be something more." And so we were focusing a bit more on uh, one day racing and you know punchy finishing, and 
improve his, his, his ability to climb because I think it is okay. It's not one of the freak of the nature in, in terms of power to weight ratio, but on a, on, a, on a good day, you know, when it's light like it is now, he can climb well. And we've seen him in Paris, uh, we've seen him in Sarreno, which, which was just a better of bad position on Poggio, otherwise he would have been very close to top 10. We see, we are seeing him Pais Vasque, which is with him, and I, I think it will be will be one of you know our best chance for the for the Ardennes Classic after if he come out in Pais Vasque in good condition. So uh, I'm happy the way the way he has matured this year because it's showing that it's not only a time trailer. Yeah, I mean I think he what has three top fives at Basque Country so far. That's a yes, he got yeah, and and if you see. Where he was positioned today in the final two corner, I mean that's crazy. He would have, you know, he was like maybe 15 position and he finished yeah. fourth. That was, uh, I mean, I think it's just because he's new to to this. Uh, he's never find himself in this position, such position in the final. So he need to figure out. He need to learn quickly how to 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 you know to. Uh, <laughs> to have that that killer instinct in the final to win a race so we have a year your home grand tours here at italia you have two stage wins there um a couple runner-ups who's your pick to win this year who do you think is going to come out on top remco or primos or someone else i think on paper if nothing's happened uh pretty much uh, sorry remco remco was uh is my is my my uh, the safest bet uh just because the Giro will be decided in the final week this year. And uh the history shows that Roglic tends to slow down in the final week. And uh other in the end it will be it will be we have to see the star list. Through the through the winter, I was thinking J Vine might be a surprise, but I don't know his current uh, state of form. If he have an injury or something, I think I have something like that. But uh, when I saw him winning down under, I was thinking it could be you know a, a, a Giro contender this year, better than uh, Oliver uh, Almeida. Yeah, J Vine kind of I call it the Australian disease, where you're so fit for Tour Down Under, and it's like they get so excited for that race, and then they'll like putter along. For a few months, I think he also had a bad crash. But yeah, he was someone that I thought. Yeah, could. yeah, I think he had something. He had something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the Giro is always, is is the over the free Grand Tour is the 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 least predictable, because uh, you know it's always a race full of uh, of uh, tricks, and so it's uh, yeah, I probably you know. Everybody will focus on Remco and Roglic, but there's probably 50 potential will be a name that nobody's considering before the start. And Marco, to circle back on just the topic of high performance, like equipment, psychology, nutrition, there are all the things that we talked about, and you may not even be able to talk about this, but I have to think that there are things that are coming next and areas that you're investigating that are the new frontier of performance and cycling with the rider, with equipment. Is there anything that's on your mind or that you're investigating that you can speak about? So since uh, I was racing, everybody's talking about 
the, the mental side of things, the mental fitness, the psychology part uh, will uh, uh, get more and more important. I, you know, and after 20 years, uh, I'm still in, you know, we have riders going, you know, uh, working to improve their mental fitness. But I think uh, this, uh, this work hasn't really uh, taken off, this, this field, because so far, the selection of the rider as, you know, that comes to a uh, high level has been uh, quite, uh, quite hard. So when a rider turns pro, already got through certain steps, so he had to kind of, so there has been a self-selection of riders, of tough riders, okay, who are able to overcome difficulties. But now I see the trends for the team to look for younger and younger talents and to nurture them, okay? They, they want to protect them. So you go to a, now a junior race and you pick a 17-year-old and you, you, you maybe sign a contract to turn pro in four or five years. So you follow them through the process. And I think for this rider, the psychology will be more important. Because they are protected in a, they are kept in a, they will be kept in a, in a protected envi environment and support. But basically, we are taking away from this rider they, what, you know, they, what their peers, they, 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 they uh, people of same age, are experiencing. And at some point, I think they will mentally break down if they don't have the psychology support. So I think this is, could be an area that we need uh, that you know to to think about the mental fitness and mental health of of a young rider, 17, 18 years old, where where which future has been already is is being planned, you know, well in advance. Especially you know they get maybe bigger contract for for them, so they don't have the it's something that happened in other sports in soccer. And some of them, they are not able to, you know, to keep a stable life because so they 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 will need they need they will need to have a net of support bigger than uh, we actually have. It's kind of an interesting to think about if if everyone's training becomes the same, you know, if everyone is kind of doing the same thing because everyone knows more than they used to. That yeah, the mental side would be the difference maker in that in that scenario. Uh, but it, it still is. It still is. Now it's already is the mental side, but uh, there has been, you know, a self-selection already. You know, people, people, we rather freak of the nature without a strong, um, a strong mind. They are out of the sport, but now they they are kept in the sport because they have, you know, put on a on a on a preferential uh, line. And so, but they, 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 they need to develop a, 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 the mental side of, uh, of, uh, of uh, you know, of the high-level sport. Yeah, Marco, this is a topic that Spencer and I talk about all the time because we're not as deep inside the sport as you are, and Spencer's in it much deeper than I am. But just even from the outside, you can see when we have even the Galacticos, we have some of these riders who at a very young age are achieving the very highest achievements that you can in the sport and there's a difference between i can go right at seven watts per kilogram for 20 minutes and win a mountain stage or win a tour or whatever and 
I can handle being one of the world's most famous people with the pressure of people expecting me to walk into the Tour de France and win. That is a huge burden. And as you said, if you haven't gone through this selection and had your feet in the fire and had those moments like you were describing a short while ago with the rider transitioning from being a TT rider to trying to go for these wins where it's like, yeah, man, it's like you got to you have to turn the switch now and you have to go from maybe I can do this to I'm going to destroy everyone in this race. Those are pretty different things, right? No, that's exactly that. And uh, uh, it's also part of the agent. They want to maximize the benefit of young rider. But, you know, a person of 18, 19 years old, their brain is not mature at that age for, you know, to be or to sometimes to tolerate that high pressure for a long time. And we've seen, we've seen this already, <clears throat> this trend with the uh, riders retiring at the early, uh, we've seen some sign. Okay, okay, Ron Dennis is retiring at the end of the season. Uh, Van Gaarder retired like, I mean, I think 32 years old. And he start, you know, he started to have a fresher when he was 23 or year old. Even Peter Sagan, hasn't had uh, what you would have I mean, instead of a great career, but he hasn't, he has a great career until to a point, and then, the, you know, he started declining earlier that was used to, to be considered the norm in, in cycling. And uh, even Pinot, okay, is like of, he started winning in 2012, and now it's, so there's 10 years window, which it's always 10 years maximum. Regardless, if you start at 25 or if you start at 18. So, but my 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 feeling is that if you start at 18, it's not it's not going to be 10 years. It's going to be six, seven years. Interesting. Unless, unless I don't know, you are you are a Pogacar freak of a nature that really love love what you do. It's passion and overcome everything. That's just what I feel. Yes. Well, we'll let you get back to, I don't want to take up too much of your time, get back to your spreadsheets, get your dinner ready for this, at this training camp. But before you go, who, yeah. who's your pick for Sunday at, at Paris-Roubaix? Well, we talked about before, I, I go for Ghana. Yeah. I, I, that would be exciting. I would love to see that. Love it. I would too. That'd be incredible. And I think he can do it. Now, because, because he's really the one, you know, when he prepared for world championship, he's the one that is, a, it's, it's, it's so in the past. Is able to to target the goal, you know. We've seen with Van Ayer strong everywhere, but uh, or even Jumbo Visma, you know, stronger every race. But the, their goal was Flanders, and they completely missed that. But Ghana is, you know, the national uh, uh, world championship uh, team pursuit, Olympic games. It just have a ability to switch on and, and bring the best game to that day. Yeah, like the Torino Adriatico time trial, that opening. I mean, that was super impressive. Just kind of coming off. Yeah his track season, just like, boom, I'm going to go three K's an hour faster than everybody. <laughs> that was unbelievable. <laughs> he wanted the Trident. <laughs> and one more question for you, Marco, that I just thought of when you guys do these camps in Andorra, are you renting out like a whole hotel or, or how does the accommodation situation work? No, we are, we're just renting the room. We okay. need, uh, some, uh, we have, so last year we ran the same camp. We just rent out two apartments. Oh one for the staff and one for the riders. So, and we were eating all together in the same apartment. We had a chef. This year, uh, you know, I decided to make a change and uh, we're just renting the hotel in a room uh, uh, and then we eat at the, at the restaurant of the, of the, of the hotel. 
No, we, because it's a very small camp. We are we have four riders here, not more. So uh, it's more maybe a January camp where you have thirty riders or a February a December camp, and you rent out. Yeah, not the whole hotel, but a big part of it. Are you preparing for the Giro or just for the Ardennes? No, for, for the, the Giro. Giro here. Yeah, right. They're coming in from the Giro. Yeah. Very cool. Well, well, thank you so much for uh, for bringing us behind the curtain. That was fascinating. I'm sure everyone is gonna have loved that. Andrew, do you have anything to add before we take off? No, just Marco. Thanks so much for your time. Really value getting the chance to go deep on the equipment side, the psychology side, the high performance side. Really fascinating to hear your perspective. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much again for inviting me, and uh, bye to all the listeners. All right. Ciao.